SCP-6183 Black Box If the SCP Foundation could just suddenly remove all anomalies from existence, would they do so? Sure, they talk about how research and containment is their priority, and that terminating anomalies can be dangerous and foolish, but there have been times when they deemed it best to just get rid of them rather than trying to box them up. The Foundation's ultimate goal is maintaining normalcy, and a world without anomalies would certainly be pretty normal. SCP-6183 is an article taking place within the Admonition Canon, a series focused around the Foundation coming up with lofty goals and then stumbling into larger problems because of these goals. This isn't a full-fledged episode in the series, merely an intermission meant to expand the canon, but the overall themes still hold true. SCP-6183 begins by noting that this document has been marked for deletions, and gives its containment class as Keter. The assigned departments to the project are both the Decommissioning Department and Esophysics, the study of entities that embody certain universal concepts such as time or death. The containment procedures note that since 6183 does not exist entirely within our accessible portion of this phase-space iteration, meaning any place in our universe at any given time, the efficacy of ongoing containment efforts cannot be currently determined. An effective medium of oversight and containment is necessary, however, despite any and all perceived benefit provided by its existence, with a footnote indicating that this anomaly has been integrated into the Foundation's command structure. So we have some sort of entity that likely embodies an entire concept but doesn't exist entirely in our universe, and has some sort of benefit tied to the entire Foundation. The description, however, is completely useless, only indicating that the various sections of the description document used to apparently exist, but no longer do, likely due to some sort of deletion. There is an image of a foreboding-looking staircase leading down, but the caption has also been deleted. Moving on though, we are given an addendum of the object's initial discovery, in which it was discovered following investigation into a worsening database issue, wherein entire sectors of deleted space could not properly be overwritten. The Records and Information Security Administration's research into these sectors revealed a perpetual backup of deleted archival data being held in a secret Foundation server, supposedly owned by a Department of Deletions. This department is apparently located on Site-19's 48th sublevel, which of course does not exist. This server, which does exist, receives approximately 1% of SCP files that are removed from the main archive, even if the server is placed inside of an exclusion field that cuts it off from internet access or electricity. Nearly all of these deleted files received by the server have been heavily corrupted, often to the point of inaccessibility. Close examination of these files, however, has revealed apparent messages concealed within. The message logs containing these secret messages have been deleted from the document as well though, 
along with the following two addenda. Instead, we're given a log of a decommissions meeting discussing a worrying problem. 058 is joined by Director Calvin Bold of the Decommission Department, Petrikow of Analytics, and Dr. Reinders of the Acromatic Abatement Section. Bold was under the impression that they'd be giving this presentation to the entire council, but 8 says that they're spread rather thin at the moment. Petrikow begins by handing 8 a sheaf of papers, saying that the rate at which they've been discovering new anomalies has increased by over 44% in just the past decade. 8 responds that the expansion has been worrying, and there was a time in which they would fill maybe a dozen or two slots per quarter, but now it feels like they fill twice that many in a day. He asks what the cause of this is, and what the feasibility of containment is, but Bold says that it's not that simple. Reinders explains that anomalies, as a common rule, beget more anomalies. Non-Euclidean spaces distort surrounding geometries, thaumaturges imbue everyday objects with magics and teach their craft to baseline humans, while anomalous wildlife reproduces, crossbreeds, and mutates with abandon. The amount of damage a single reality bender can do to the veil in a single weekend is staggering even while not considering the rest of the picture. Between the natural rate of aberrant proliferation, increases in unlicensed thaumaturgy, and the recent surge of hive mines in free ports, they're on the verge of an anomalous baby boom that, if left unchecked, will throw them directly into an end-of-normalcy scenario. Eight asks what solutions they have for this, and Bold replies that, Decommission appears to be their only remaining option, with potential for long-term sustainability, as they simply do not have the resources to continue containment as they have been. Unfortunately, however, they're not sure if that is even an option at this point. Decommissioning isn't an inexpensive process, and there are precautions that need to be taken to avoid worsening an anomaly's effects, or bringing harm to Foundation property and staff. There's also the cost of developing and manufacturing appropriate equipment to ensure maximal success rates, and the aftermath is nearly as expensive. Reinders comments that the process of disposing of anomalous waste products makes radioactive waste handling look risk-free by comparison, with each anomaly having unique parameters for disposal. Decommissioning is the same way, not even mentioning that decommissioned success rates have been decreasing by over 25% in the past three years. This is due to a cultural shift, as the longer the Foundation exists, the more likely that anomalous cultural cells and organizations are to create countermeasures against the Foundation. Related anomalies are adapting to their methods as a result. Eight says that this is highly concerning, and asks if they need disinformation campaigns or mimetic agents, and asks how much they need to spend to get something like that off the ground nowadays. Reinders says that they have some rough ideas for avenues of research and subterfuge they could pursue. When she begins to look for a spreadsheet, an entity hands 058 a piece of paper, and they all pause, 
as apparently a disembodied arm appeared and handed Eight the paper before disappearing. Eight takes care not to look at the paper directly, instead putting it at the bottom of the stack of papers. Petrakow asks if the facility has been breached, but Eight just calmly speaks into a nearby microphone, saying that he needs a memetics team in here for an emergency inspection, with possible cognitohazard inoculation necessary. They appear to have received some unexpected mail. In the next addendum, a junior researcher in a break room at a different site is interrupted by the sudden manifestation of a disembodied head. The identity of the head has been deleted from the record, and it tells the researcher to not freak out. The researcher, however, of course, screams and loses her balance. The entity asks if they got their message, but the researcher is still panicking and asks what is happening. The entity looks around and says that they must have overshot, asking what time it is and where conference room 104 is. The conference room is right underneath them, so the entity thanks the researcher and the head demanifests. Afterwards, the entity meets with Director Genevieve of the Esophysics Department in the conference room, although she's a little upset that a floating head is scaring off the new recruits she was supposed to be recruiting today. The entity says that it's glad to speak with her in person though, as it really can't say the last time it had a face-to-face -face conversation. They usually only get a limb through, as it's an imprecise science, and it works better if you don't think about it. Genevieve asks why it's here, as she did get a message from it that asked for her specifically, but she doesn't know what it means for her and her department. The entity says that it's about the database and her career, and it's all in the note. While Genevieve retrieves the note and rereads it, a hand materializes and scratches the entity's nose, much to its relief. Genevieve asks about a section of the note that mentions Query Denied, to which the entity says that it can't answer that yet, and it thinks she knows that it can't answer that yet. Genevieve responds that this is pretty simple then, as it's not her problem and they also can't stop the entity from leaving if it wants. The entity says that they're both colleagues here, and it came to her fully acknowledging the risks to itself. Genevieve, however, is still clueless on where it came from, what the risks are, and why any of this would be her responsibility. The entity replies that it wishes it could explain it to her, but it's beyond the scope of her perception. It isn't non-logical, nor is it non-existent, it's just something far different and far worse, and explaining it to her even a little bit would be disadvantageous. Genevieve asks it to give them something to work with, as it claims to be a foundation department. The entity says that it's not that the information she's talking about doesn't exist, as it's here and it never left. But that's sort of the problem, that's why they're having this conversation. All of the component parts are beyond her reach, and it cannot point her to where they are, but it sees them. They are in so much pain, and feel so much hatred, and then it says that above them all, there's something. <laughs> 
but the text here becomes completely garbled and illegible. Genevieve responds that that's ridiculous, as they're manifesting on its side of the barrier, so its department should be the one handling this. The entity says that there's nothing else they can do, so the rest of the foundation will have to be the ones to change. It asks what Genevieve's decision is, but there's only silence, as her mouth has now been deleted. The entity then says, you don't have that authority, as if Genevieve still spoke, followed by more silence from her, to which the entity says that there's no need to yell. In the next addendum, the location is still listed as the conference room, and Genevieve is still speaking with the entity, but chunks of the text are garbled or deleted. Genevieve asks the entity how a department like the Department of Deletions comes into being, and the entity says that it's the same as anything else. Equal, opposite forces resulting from other, more equal and opposite forces, though it would hesitate to call it being in any sense. It wouldn't be here if it weren't for this database issue, so that's the irony of their mission. They are because they shouldn't. Over in white space, though, it makes all the sense in the world. White space is apparently unoccupied alt space-time where the entity comes from, like a parallel universe made out of void and multi-dimensional garbage ejected from other timelines. The void parts are white space, the junk is black box, and together they comprise everything that isn't all of this here the Grey. The Entity's world plus Genevieve's worlds equal the database. Genevieve begins to ask about the database, but the Entity's head melts and reforms, followed by the sudden manifestation of a writhing, cephalopod tentacle. She decides to change topic, and asks about the Entity's childhood and earliest memory. As the tentacle transforms into a mass of beads, which scatter across the floor, and two left arms and a torso materialize in the air, the entity says that it grew up in Center, Nebraska in the late 80s. Its earliest memory was celebrating its birthday, but it doesn't know which one. Genevieve says that she was expecting something more atypical. But then the entity says that it was Leeds in the 70s, and it was warm out, before changing to say that it grew up in Pensacola, and it remembers swimming in the dark. It was a southern brook lamprey, the fish, not the eel, but then it groans and grips its head with the two left hands. It then says that it wasn't that at all, and wonders if it was Efsferank during a snowstorm, or Ennahud before saying that it's certain that it was Perth, and it was drowning. Its fingers tighten on its head, sinking into its scalp and face as a wet, tearing sound can be heard. Genevieve does not react to this, and its wounds do not bleed. It says that it can still hear the tide, and begins coughing, vomiting up salt water, Genevieve asks it what it's trying to tell her, and it responds that it's had so many birthdays, 
and so many parts of it have had birthdays, and countless first memories. One day, it might have hers. It then shivers, glancing in two different directions at once, then two more, then two more, then two more, then one. It then whispers, and says that they were deleted. Genevieve asks whom deleted them, but the entity responds only with silence, although the log instead writes that the entity is responding with query denied. The entity then makes direct eye contact with Genevieve, although the log then states that its expression is denied. The rest of what the entity had to say has been deleted, and Genevieve says that they'll try again later, ending the interview. The last bit of the addendum states that the entity is then deleted. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Obviously, it's very unclear what exactly is happening here, but this entity seems to be connected to the Foundation and some sort of department of deletions, while also being from some other level of existence. The next addendum no longer exists, but the following one does, showing an image of a very dark hallway and some rather garbled text. The text seems to be explaining a subcomponent of the overall anomaly, which is a range of phenomena affecting transitional passageways, such as hallways and stairwells located within Foundation infrastructure across the planet. Apparently, some of these hallways spontaneously cause their interiors to become lost, which has resulted in a number of potential casualties and unusable spaces. Something is causing the rate of manifestation of these anomalies, and the total area of space each can encompass, to increase, and analysts predict that eventually the problem will become unsustainable for the Foundation. We're next given a testing log of this phenomenon, although some more of the text is garbled, and it seems that the Foundation, led by Director Bold of the Decommissioning Department, set about using it to delete anomalies. The first test was done on the first item from the Log of Anomalous Items, a list of minor anomalies that don't warrant full SCP status. This object was an unbreakable lamp, and was chosen specifically because it was the last sort of thing that the Foundation would need to be decommissioned, being indestructible and utterly harmless. It was successfully deleted, and Bold calls it a promising first step. The log then skips 27 more tests, with the 29th test being on SCP-352, a supernaturally powerful, dangerous, and hostile witch that has proven to recover from all injuries inflicted on it. Bold notes that they had no reason to believe that the anomalous hallways wouldn't work on living subjects, 
but after the successful deletion of 352, it's good to have confirmation. The 44th test was done on SCP-3333, a spatial anomaly located inside of a fire lookout that contains a number of hostile entities that can kill and impersonate humans. The deletion event during the test revealed that 12 Foundation personnel outside of the observation post around 3333 had been covertly killed and replaced. Bold notes that even though the hallway anomaly uses Foundation documentation in some way to identify its targets, it was able to identify several of the entities that 3333's researchers were entirely ignorant of. This potentially supports Genevieve's theory that it attacks its targets on a conceptual level. If the Foundation has an anomaly at their disposal that can delete things on a conceptual level, chances are that this doesn't end well. Despite this, Bold forges ahead, and test number 81 was performed on The Beast Which Endures. The text color of this being green, and it being a description rather than a name, points to it being related to the Fae of SCP-4000, and the protocol the Foundation has for them to prevent them stealing names. Obviously, the beast which endures would be SCP-682, which doesn't typically have any connection to the Fae, but even more surprisingly, the test was initially a success deleting 682. Six hours later, however, it reappeared in a cave system in China where SCP-553 is contained, a collection of crystalline butterflies. 682 obviously managed to breach containment, and at the same time, all instances of the butterflies vanished, both from the cave system and an experimentation chamber at a site. 682 was recaptured, but it was discovered that its scales now possess a crystalline structure, and a set of wings have grown from its back. Director Genevieve ponders if 682 reasserted itself by overwriting another anomaly, and if so, this could have a number of potential implications relating to the hallway anomaly's effects. Sometimes the Foundation just can't leave well enough alone and so they performed another deletion test on 682, which resulted in yet another success initially. However, travel to the forest of SCP-4000 is now prohibited, and all lifeforms within are considered lost. So this time, the lizard managed to overwrite an entire sapient species, which explains its current connection to the Fae. Bold notes that this was a mistake, and all proposals to delete 682 will be rejected, as no good will come from following this path, if one even exists anymore. Considering this takes place in the Admonition Canon, in which an alternate timeline of the Foundation went to great lengths to remove the Lizard from existence, it's probably best if they stop trying. They didn't stop trying to delete other things, however, and the tests continued. Test number 112 was done on SCP-5789, the set of all mathematical numbers that do not exist. 
whenever an existing number is exposed to this non-existent set of numbers, it also ceases to exist, which can cause some problems, obviously. The Foundation managed to delete this entire set of non-existent numbers, and Genevieve writes that this definitively proves that the deletion anomaly operates within conceptual space. The next addendum of the document no longer exists, but the following does, titled Black Box Incident Log. The foreword explaining the log is almost entirely garbled, but it seems to be related to the process in which a deleted anomaly will overwrite another one. The first black box incident occurred in the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, as a non-Euclidean architectural anomaly spontaneously appeared. The Foundation's automated classification system assigns it the now vacated designation of SCP-3333, formerly belonging to the Fire Lookout. Three days after this classification, a window manifested in the house's basement, displaying a view of the National Forest where the Fire Lookout was located. This prompted further examination of the anomaly, which revealed a locked trap door in the ceiling of the house's top floor. Realizing the rapidly forming similarities between this new anomaly and the old 3333, Bold utilized the deletion anomaly to delete this new anomaly before any of the impersonation entities could manifest. He notes that he was hoping that deleted anomalies partially overwriting one another would be limited to the fiasco with 682, but this incident seems to imply otherwise. Reza has been instructed to modify the classification system to stop future SCPs from being given the same numbers as previously deleted SCPs, which should hopefully prevent further incidents. The following two incident logs don't exist, and the summary of the fourth incident has been deleted as well. In the notes, Bold writes that something is very wrong with the Foundation database. Edits are reverting, files are corrupting or deleting themselves at random, redactions and black boxes are appearing where vital information was present only the day before. At this point, there's a good chance that this incident log won't even make it into the documentation. They're rapidly careening towards an internal communications blackout unlike anything they've dealt with before. As of this moment, nine secure facilities are considered inactive or dark, with thirteen others perilously close to the same fate. We're then informed that the file containing the black box incident logs cannot be read because it is either in use or corrupted, but we're given one more incident numbered 1416. The summary has been deleted and the note for it simply reads, This is how it ends, isn't it? Four more addenda are non-existent in the document, until we're given another one, this time an exploration log of a research station named after Nemesine, the Greek goddess of memory. A D-class was sent into the sub-basement tunnel claimed to be the location of research station Nemesine, in order to further Foundation understanding of SCP-6183. 
This was apparently located in Site-19's non-existent 48th sublevel, and the D-Class was directed there via instructions provided by Deletion's agents. The D-Class's camera feed shows the interior of one of Site-19's maintenance access tunnels, and Control tells him to just follow the instructions given to him in order of presentation. He approaches the far end of the hallway, which reveals a lone wooden doorway, and on the other side, a stairwell leading down. Rather than being made of concrete and steel, it appears to be constructed of drywall and laminate flooring, and the D-Class remarks on the whole thing looking kind of like a residential home. He also mentions the air being surprisingly cold, and there's a sort of hum in this stairwell although his microphone doesn't pick anything up. He begins descending the stairwell, his flashlight only illuminating a small area, until he reaches another doorway leading into a completely dark room. He wonders why it's so quiet here, as there's nothing besides the hum, not even his tinnitus. He's on edge, but Control just tells him to continue onwards. He begins exploring the room the ceiling of which is out of his flashlight's range, and the space is unfurnished and carpeted. There are frosted glass light fixtures, but no light switches, and he notes that the fixtures contain no bulbs and no wiring. At the far end of the room, an adjoining passageway takes a sharp turn, and the D-Class turns to find a straight staircase bathed in light, leading upwards. The light here appears unaffected by whatever phenomenon was in the previous area affecting his flashlight and headlamp. The D-Class remarks on how he's going to continue to explore this area, and then he's going to get back to the D-Class common room in time to watch Coco with the others, along with getting a fresh pressed apple juice they come around with every Thursday. Control informs him that it's Wednesday today with the D-Class asking if they're trying to ruin his day. He continues, remarking on how empty and clean this whole place is, without a scuff on the floor, and says that the hum is not just a hum. Control asks him to be more specific, and after a brief pause, he says that it's not just a sound, but a physical sensation. It's something connected with the darkness, and it's thicker than regular air, vibrating his chest when he breathes. He continues down the hall towards the light, and Control's connection with him stops temporarily. When it returns, the D-Class is saying that his head feels like it's in a vice, and his body is tingling all over. He then exclaims that his hand is now suddenly made of candle wax, with a wick running through the middle finger. He can't feel it, and in the process he snaps off one of his fingers, feeling no pain. He begins to panic, and Control tells him that they're activating the recovery tether now, and to not remove any more of his fingers, wax or otherwise. The D-Class says that he's not bleeding, but he doesn't think this is fixable. He tells Control to just get him out of here, as he can still make Coco if he heads out soon. Control activates the recovery tether, which uses an automated winch 
to retrieve personnel at a rate of approximately 10 kilometers per hour. The cable, however, never pulls taut, and they hear no commotion coming from the D-Class's microphone, so they ask if he's attached to his tether or not. The D-Class only responds that he's zoned out for a second, and doesn't answer the question. The tether is soon fully retrieved, with the D-Class's harness attached to the end, so they ask the D-Class to respond. He however asks them why they're ignoring him, and tells them to pull him out now. He says that he didn't remove his harness, but then realizes the problem. He says that the upper half of his body is gone, and ponders when that happened. Control remarks that he doesn't seem too concerned about that, and he says that he was before he started turning into candle wax and fettuccine. When Control says that he hasn't mentioned any pasta-related activity until now, he responds that time feels like it doesn't move the same way over here, as if he can see something and it can see him too, although what that something is has been garbled in the text. He says that sometimes Control speaks really slowly, and sometimes he can barely keep up, while other times they just ignore him completely. He's also realizing that he's not alone down here, and never was, with other pieces of him and pieces of others floating in black clouds. He says that you soak them up, and they fill in the blank spaces that have been erased, or deleted. It's like thousands of thousand-piece jigsaw puzzles, all with missing pieces thrown into one box. You could complete a puzzle, but the picture is a patchwork. He says that he feels hundreds down here, all waiting to die, but death never arrives. The construct is flawed, the wheel has been broken, the mirror reflects a negative, equal and opposite forces. He wonders why this feels familiar, and who he is. Control asks him if he can still move, and he says that he can move in some directions, like towards the stairwell, but if he tries to leave this hallway, he starts to lose pieces of himself, and it hurts. He thinks that he's been marked, and it's why he can't leave, not this way. He then says that he got a pretty big promotion, and they've assigned him a super important mission. Control asks what this mission entails exactly, and he says, Message Delivery. The audio feed is lost shortly after, and is not recovered. In post-exploratory analysis, a set of heavily corrupted frames are recovered from the recorded video, and the D-Class is considered MIA. Further attempts at communication have yielded mixed results. The last recovered image from the feed shows a dark hallway leading towards a lit doorway. Alright, so of course it's a pretty weird and vague anomaly, with pretty far-reaching consequences related to metaphysics, which is par for the course for an admonition article. First, let's look at what deletion actually refers to, as it's a very deliberate word choice for the article as opposed to, say, termination. Often we think of computers when we hear the word, 
And of course, this all started with the Foundation discovering a problem with their database, in which deleted memory space couldn't be overwritten. When you delete a file on a computer, at least typically, the system doesn't actually erase all of the bits of information making up that file. Instead, the system just marks the file as being able to be overwritten, allowing other files to come along and take its place. This is why deleted files can sometimes be recovered, as they haven't been completely overwritten yet. This brings us to the SCP universe, which, following the pataphysical model, consists of a series of files on a wiki that can be created, edited, and deleted. What exactly happens in the SCP universe when an article is deleted from the database? As it turns out, these anomalies are not entirely gone, but rather become fragments, existing in a void space between existence and non-existence. The Foundation discovers an anomaly that can similarly delete other anomalies, believing that it consigns them to non-existence, but rather it just breaks them up and sends them to this void space. Sometimes they can manage to return, such as by brute force in 682's case, or if a slot in the database, and therefore existence, opens up again. 3333 was deleted, but parts of it still existed in a sense, so when another anomaly took its place, it began overwriting aspects of the new anomaly with itself, corrupting it like a corrupted file. As it turns out though, the Foundation actually does have a department that exists within this void space, the Department of Deletions. The specifics of how exactly this department functions are unclear, but it seems that they manage to recruit agents that have been deleted through one way or another, and use them to help protect the Foundation. The entity that manifested to Genevieve was one of these, somehow managing to temporarily break out of the void space, or as he calls it, the Grey, and was able to send a message. Something is causing trouble in the Grey, something that necessitates intervention from more than just the Department of Deletions, although this article ends before we get a clear picture as to what the issue is. As a standalone article, there's a bit too much obfuscation and partial hints here to really make much sense out of it. However, as a part of the overall admonition canon, it points towards something much larger, as the series is about the Foundation stumbling into big problems by trying to solve smaller ones. Clearly their over-eager interest in deleting meddlesome anomalies here is going to cause them some problems, since none of them have been entirely deleted, and that's not even mentioning the whole hallway anomaly that deletes things on its own. We weren't given clear info on it, but from the sounds of it, this could eventually lead to a complete breakdown of the Foundation's ability to contain objects. And that could just be a start of the bad stuff.